Thanks for tuning in to the Think for Yourself podcast, hosted by Dr. Vikraman Sharmani. The podcast was started in early 2020 to share some of the ideas from his most recent book, Think for Yourself, Restoring Common Sense in the Age of Experts in Artificial Intelligence, which is available for purchase via Amazon, bookshop.org, and most other retailers. This episode is the audio portion of a webinar hosted by Dr. Mancha Romani on October 16th with General Susan Helms, a retired three-star Air Force general and astronaut who spent 211 days in outer space. The video replay of the discussion is available at www.mancharamani.com. I am absolutely thrilled today to have with us uh, Lieutenant General uh, retired Susan Helms. Uh, General Helms uh, has a storied career in the U.S. Air Force that includes a lot of time spent in space uh, as an astronaut. And so I'm really looking forward to our discussion about space, uh, the militarization efforts in space, uh, and just generally uh, a little bit more about her really fabulous and and wildly successful career. Um, But before we dive into that, uh, some advertisements uh, that I must continue to have. <laughs> uh, so uh, next week, I'm going to be uh, speaking with Dr. David Katz. Dr. Katz wrote a book with uh, Mark Bittman recently called How to Eat, All Your Food and Diet Questions Answered. Um, and so we're going to speak with him next week on October 23rd at 1.30. Uh, again, a conversation that should be uh, very different, but yet very interesting than the one we're going to have today. Um, and then there are the two replays for the previous two sessions that I've had this fall. Uh, Annie Duke, her book was actually just released this week, uh, How to Decide, a professional poker player. Uh, the replay for that conversation is available. And then uh, last week also had uh, Dr. Rakesh Karana, who is the Dean of Harvard College. Um, that was a fun conversation about life, uh, education, civic engagement, and, and sort of training and thinking about training the next generation to think for themselves. Uh, so that was a wonderful conversation, the replay for which is also available. Um, and the last uh, advertisement, of course, is for this book, which is available for a mere twenty-one ninety-five. <laughs> Actually, I don't know what the price is on Amazon, but um, the book is available. It's uh, it's something that I would encourage you to to purchase, and would love any feedback you have. Um, and with that, let's go ahead and turn to. Uh, the wonderful conversation that I expect uh, will forthcome here uh, with General Helms. So, General Helms, thank you so much for joining me. I'm thrilled to have you with us here today and excited to have this conversation. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here too. So, uh, you know, I know you've had a, a wonderful career that spanned 30 plus years in the military, but how did it begin? What was the inspiration? What took you to or towards maybe the Air Force, and then later towards NASA and space? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, A lot of people, by the way, want to try to understand the answer to that question because it is such a unique career that I've had. Uh, My dad was a military pilot in the Air Force. And so um, being the oldest of four daughters, I think you could say I was probably the overachiever, but I wanted to be in the Air Force just like my dad for a couple of reasons. Uh, one was, it was obvious that there was a chance to travel. <laughs> Little did I know how far that would take me. Uh, <laughs> but I, I definitely liked the whole concept of the military culture. I liked the idea of the good order and discipline. I was probably a natural fit for that. 
And then I, we're talking 1973, 74 when I decided to do this. I also like the idea of equal pay for equal work, which was not necessarily something that you would find in other parts of the employment workforce in the 70s. Um, it was pretty clear that with the military, you were the rank structure is such that your pay is non-negotiable. If you reach a certain rank, you're going to get a certain pay. Yep. And so, believe it or not, that was an attractive component as well as a retirement plan for the yep. military. And so all these things were um, kind of rolled up into a, this is the adventure I'd like to go on. Yep. And the opening of the Air Force Academy and the other service academies to women happened to coincide with the exact time that I was graduating from high school. Yep. So I was encouraged by my dad and my mom both to uh, apply if I had an interest in that. And of course I did. And uh, I applied through the state of Oregon, Mark Hatfield, Senator Mark Hatfield was my sponsor, if you will, for my appointment to the Air Force Academy. Yep. And, um, and then I went and stuck it out all four years. And at that time, my only awareness of the astronaut program was that NASA had a selection in 1978. And, um, Nichelle Nichols, who is the famous Lieutenant Uhura from Star Trek, had been recruited to try to recruit women to apply to the NASA astronaut program. And that was happening at the time I was a cadet at the academy. So that caught my eye, but it was still not something that I had planned for my future. Yep. Uh, it wasn't until the 80s, the mid 80s, I had gone to an IMAX movie um, and by then I had become a test engineer. I, I was definitely deep in the engineering career field. I enjoyed operational engineering, uh, doing test flights and, and the like in the military. And I went to this IMAX movie called The Dream is Alive. Yep. And I kind of walked out of that movie going, oh yeah, I would like to do that. And so um, <laughs> after I, Graduated from test pilot school as a test engineer. That happened after this experience of seeing this movie. Um, Dick Covey, who was a, a famous Air Force Academy graduate astronaut, was our guest speaker for graduation of the test pilot school after a year of the school. And he came up to me after the graduation uh, celebration. And he said, well, I hope we see you in Houston sometime. And I think that was when I had an inkling that it was probably worth a try to put my application in. And um, I, I did put my application in for the very next round of selections and I got selected in the very next round. Uh, so competitive too, right? It's very competitive. There were probably about, I'm gonna guess eight to 10,000 people who apply. I would say of that eight to 10,000, there's probably there was probably six or 700 who were competitive. Mm -hmm. uh, they narrowed that down to about 100 people. In our case for that year, it was 106 or seven people to interview. Yep. And yep. then they picked 23 in that class. We were group 13. Uh, if you think of John Glenn and Alan Shepard, they were group one. Okay. And so by the time I got in, it was group 13. Yep. And, uh, and that was in 1990. And uh, the Air Force, of course, was very accommodating. There were actually seven of us selected from the Air Force that year. Uh, hmm. Five test pilots and two test engineers. And okay. so uh, 
yeah. the seven of us joined the other folks, uh, a few from the Army, a couple from the Navy and Marines, and then the rest were filled out with civilians. And uh, we formed that Group 13 Corps. Interesting. So it's fascinating to me that it was the movie that got you inspired. I mean, oftentimes you hear science fiction or some other inspiration, but it was a movie, really. Yeah, it was like that movie showed me how I could take what I was already doing, which was flying in jet airplanes and doing test work and doing operational application of engineering. Mm -hmm. And it, when I watched that IMAX movie, it was like, oh, this is almost kind of the same thing, only it's higher and faster. And the view is a lot cooler. So um, I, I really loved what I was doing. So for me, it was a win-win. I told the folks at the interview that, that took place as a part of our application process, um, cause they do ask that question, what are you going to do if you don't get picked? So, um, I was a win-win. I was either, I get to be an astronaut or I get to keep being a test engineer and flying in cool jets. Yeah. Um, and either way I'm going to be, I'm going to be getting a win out of this. Yep. And I had plans for follow-on assignments in the event this NASA thing didn't work out, but as it turns out, it worked out. So yeah. I ended up picking up and moving uh, to Houston, Texas for the next 12 years. Um, hit the sweet spot, by the way, of the shuttle era. Um, mm -hmm. The golden age of the space shuttle, and by that I mean the time period with the highest flight rate and the most demand for astronauts was the 90s. And so I was there for the whole 90s. And we had about um, 85 astronauts and they were flying space shuttles uh, seven or eight times a year. And so they needed a lot of people to fly a lot. And yeah. that's, I think, why people of my era in group 13, in group 14, uh, group 12, uh, we all got a chance to fly in space um, sometimes three, four times. In my case, five times. Five times, yeah. So, what was the so what was going through your head on your first mission? I'm just sort of curious. <laughs> Excitement, <gasps> nervousness, all of the above. I mean, uh, well, clearly excitement. I I think you know when you go through the interview process at NASA um, before you even get picked to be an astronaut, they kind of do a little bit of probing on your readiness to climb onto a rocket. You know, they if you have any. <laughs> doubts about your willingness to do that, um, you know, it'll, it'll probably come out in the interview and that will be a, for them, a red flag, you know, now clearly because we're very experienced technical people, um, we have an understanding of, of, you know, something that is being managed from a risk standpoint very, very well. And NASA does an extremely good job of managing risk. Uh, nonetheless, everyone, of course, recognizes that it's not a completely safe operation either. So um, there are risks involved. And I think the probing at the interview was to see if you had an understanding of what those risks entailed and whether you were willing to be a part of all of that. And, um, and, I, and I think for those of us in the test engineer business and the test pilot business, you know, we understand better than most, you know, how to manage risk in a test environment and the space shuttle and the space station, um, I would contend are still, are, they're not fully operational vehicles like an airliner. You know, they're, they're still um, an element of experimental to them, if you will. And they're test vehicles from my standpoint. The space shuttle to me was always a test vehicle. Interesting. So before we get into space, which is the fun part that I wanna to talk to you about, how about managing your career and thoughts you might have uh, 
General Helms, between NASA and the Air Force. Any contention sort of try, I mean, you sort of ran a parallel career, sort of a little tour of duty, but then came back. But I mean, did your Air Force colleagues greet you with open arms upon your return? Or was it there's sort of, wait, she went and did something fun on the side. She wasn't really one of us. Like, what was the thinking? Well, so it's interesting you ask that question because um, one thing that was a bit of a surprise to me when I got to NASA was talking to my fellow military colleagues and to realize that most of them had come to stay. And by stay, I mean stay at NASA. Uh, they did not have um, a plan to go back to the Air Force. What, well, I had a plan to go back to the Air Force. I intended to come to NASA, uh, fly in space a few times, and then go back to the Air Force if the Air Force was willing to take me back. And um, because I felt like that was more, being an Air Force officer was more my identity than being an astronaut. I know that sounds weird, but there are a few of us who felt that way. And the other person who notably felt that way was, was Kevin Chilton, um, General Chili Chilton, who ultimately became the commander of Strategic Command after he left NASA and went back to the Air Force. So, um, so my plan was to take some years out, do this astronaut thing, and then go back to the Air Force into a place that was appropriate to use my skills. I think it's safe to say that since my years at NASA spanned 1990 to 2002, the Air Force had undergone a, quite a bit of change in those 12 years, sure. not the least of which is the Cold War had ended. Uh, we had the Gulf War, uh, the first Gulf War, if you will, and um, and and space had become a, an up and coming hot topic and uh, a major part of what the Air Force was responsible for across the Department of Defense. So when I was finally ready to come back, um, which was at about the 2002 point, and I could tell that from my psyche, it, I, it was time to go back. Uh, in the Air Force's great wisdom, they, they figured out a place to put me where I could be really helpful and productive to advance the Air Force mission. And that was in the area of military space. Sure. So uh, it was pretty funny. People were wonderful about me coming back. Um, okay. I, I think my classmates from the academy, a lot of them were still around. Uh, they all came out of the woodwork to welcome me. I had nothing but um, I think a, a pretty deep welcome across many parts of the Air Force family that I reacquainted with. Mm -hmm. It was pretty funny because I hadn't worn a uniform for literally almost 12 years. I think maybe a couple of days in those 12 years, I put a uniform on for a DV visit or something. But I mean, I would gawk in and say, okay, which side of the uniform does my name tag go on? Because I, I need to be um, caught up and brought up to speed. You all need to help me. And people were extremely helpful. Uh, the, there were a lot of people who recognized the value I could bring by coming back from NASA, which does a gold standard on military operations, and try to sprinkle some of that across what the military was doing in terms of their growth of operations. And, um, mm -hmm. and, and I would say that uh, they put me in a really good place to do that, which was the area of space control, which ended up being um, an area that probably more so than other parts of military space, require a knowledge of how things move in space and operate in space. And um, the two body and the three body systems of, of things 
uh, coming together in space. Uh, rendezvous and prox ops was becoming a hot topic uh, for the military. Orbital servicing, for example, was a very hot topic at that time. And uh, being able to service satellites with robotics, and boy, did we did a lot of robotics at NASA. So yeah. it seemed like a really good fit, and I would really give the Air Force credit for putting me in a good place from the standpoint of my value contributing to the cause. Yeah. So I, I want to get it to what it's like to be in space. Uh, but before you, you said something uh, that caught my uh, attention here, you said you just knew after 12 years it was time. Right. Was it sort of you felt like you'd been there, done that space thing, you sort of got what you wanted out of it, your learning maybe had plateaued. Uh, part of the reason I ask is there's, you know, some of my students uh, dial into these and they sort of want to understand when there's a career inflection point. What is it that guides you? How do you know? And for everyone is different, but I'm curious for you what it was. Yeah, I, well, there were there was sort of the internal and then there was the external. I would have to tell you that um, at, on my fifth launch, which was the one where we were going to the International Space Station to be dropped off. So for people on this video who don't know, I had four shuttle flights and then I had one flight at the end of my string of flights that was living on the International Space Station. So that was kind of a one-way trip for, um, for about six months. And I, I distinctly remember after the launch stopped, you know, that you go through the launch and it's about an eight and a half minute process to go from liftoff all the way to orbit. Um, and it's a pretty, as I said before, pretty exciting. But I remember thinking right after engine cutoff, I don't have to do this again. Um, hmm. As it is, uh, probably the stress over the years was building up. Uh, and I think probably at that point in time, that, get, that gave me a hint that I was probably ready to go do something else. Yeah. Um, another sign was that Kevin Chilton, the person I talked about who had already gone back to the Air Force by that point, he was calling saying the Air Force really wants you back. Interesting. So there was another overt sign that, you know, so the planets were aligning, if you will. And then the third thing that um, probably sealed the deal on that was after I came back from that multi-month space flight, I went to the chief astronaut and said, okay, I'm ready, you know, what are my chances of flying again? And he goes, well, you're at the back of the line now and it's probably about an eight year wait. And you'll have to understand that I had flown five times yeah. in eight years. Yeah. So an eight year wait for a six flight, um, there's a lot of implications uh, to that. I already knew there were a lot of new astronauts in the office that had never had a flight by that point. I already knew how tough it was from the medical certification part of the process sure. to keep your medical certification for another eight years. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of things in the medical field that can be disqualifying for long-term space flight. Yeah. And, um, and I thought, oh boy, I would have to hold on to my medical, you know, no kidney stones, um, a whole host of other issues yep. that could end up, you know, kicking you out of the line, if you will, for medical reasons. Mm -hmm. um, that's something you always have to think about is taking the risk. Do I wait around for eight yep. years and then get kicked out of the process for a kidney stone at the seventh year? You know, so you always have questions like that in your mind. Um, right. But waiting eight years for a sixth flight, um, I decided to go ahead and, and pursue returning back to the Air Force at that time. It seemed like they definitely wanted me back. I was ready to go back. I had mentally somehow 
converted that five flights was more than my fair share. And, sure. uh, and so I think everything clicked together and I knew it was time to, to make the, the pursue the opportunities the Air Force had to offer. Okay. So, so now let's turn to space. So I have a handful of questions that have been sent to me before. Uh, one are from one of these questions is from some of our younger viewers. Um, uh, it might be actually my son who's nine, <laughs> but <laughs> you probably already know the question <laughs> is my guest, General Helms. Um, as uh, we discussed before, you said uh, you asked uh, nine-year-olds tend to have a certain question on their minds. Oh yes. Um, but yes. Yeah, so the question is, uh, how do you go to bath? How do you go to the bathroom in space? That was the question. Okay. Um, One of there's two questions. <laughs> yeah. That so I always find that the time it takes for that question to get asked is inversely proportional to the age of the asker. So <laughs> if you're a young uh, aspirant to be an astronaut, say about nine or 10, then you'll ask that question right away. If you're a teacher or um, someone of the older generations, it usually takes a lot longer to get around to asking that question. They want to ask early, but they're trying to be polite. Yep. So, there you go. Well, uh, I'm asking right away. <laughs> so you really, uh, if, you re if you really want me to get into the details of that, I am happy to do that. I do it all the time with, with the younger generation here. Uh, so there's, um, Clearly, people are keenly aware that space toilets exist. Um, they're fairly special toilets in that they don't have any water related to them. And, um, and basically, you have, instead of having one toilet for one overall integrated operation, you basically have a toilet that's separated into two operations, one for number one and one for number two. Sure. And um, the number one is accomplished by... Um, a hose that's got a bit of a suction on it. It's kind of like a mild vacuum hose. And so you, you've got a, a, an interface cone of sorts that can be easily cleaned. And yep. for men and women alike, you basically align that hose opening to your anatomy and uh, you know, keep oh. away, if you will. <laughs> yep. uh, for number two, it's more complicated. And, um, and the reason it's more complicated is because there is no water and there is no gravity. And so the general concept is you're, you're on a seat that's over top of a bowl. And uh, the big difference between a, an earth toilet and a space toilet is that this bowl has a lid on it. It needs a lid to keep yep. everything contained. And so the, the general idea is that you sit on the seat, you secure yourself with straps as required, and then you only after you're seated do you slide the lid out of the way. Then you do your number two business, and then most importantly, you slide the lid back before you come off the seat. So that's the general concept for how a space toilet would work. And, um, and, and you know, different toilets have different things they do from that point on. Some go to vacuum, some don't in order to freeze dry the contents. But um, the bottom line is um, they, they've generally adapted these toilets to, to humans being able to do this in a gravity-free sure. environment, so to speak. Good. All right. Well, that was one question from the from one extreme. Uh, we've got other questions that we'll, we'll sort of drizzle in here. But let me turn to one of the questions that I think a lot of people uh, from a geopolitical and sort of an international perspective are, are, are likely thinking about. But space is like another domain, right, right. Uh, General Holmes? I mean, in the That's sense that, you, right, if you think about it as a domain, I can think of land grabs on and sort of 
you know, the US or sort of North America or Asia or sort of the Arctic, et cetera, that we're trying to get our territory under control. Should we think of space as the same way as a competitive domain? Uh, or is there, you know, obviously there's some degree of cooperation, et cetera. There's rivalry, cooperation. How do you think about space uh, from that perspective? Uh, obviously, we'll get into the militarization of it, which has to do with the, the grabbing or controlling it, components of it. But even just as a portion of the world in which humans are interfacing. Yeah, I, so I think of it as um, the next place for exploration. You know, think about hundreds of years ago where the seas were sort of unexplored. And in fact, I think some would argue today they're still fully unexplored um, when it comes to understanding, you know, the full three-dimensional space of the water of our oceans. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and I think for space, it's, it's basically the next great frontier. It, and we, as humans, my personal view is our DNA is wired for exploration. You know, we, based on human history of who knows how many thousands of years, humans have gone out and done exploring into new places that they have not been before. And, and it is in our DNA to go do that. So I think of space as that next place where humans are going to start encroaching. Um, so the space station, you know, both the ones that the Soviets had put up, you know, decades ago and the one that's up now, I mean, those are the very first space outposts for humans to live and work and um, begin to establish a space-based culture, not unlike what's here on Earth. Um, a little mini society, if you will. Yep. That Those are the first steps. Uh, if you think about where human history is likely headed, then uh, exploring new worlds would be the obvious, you know, going back to the moon would be a starting point, but going to Mars and starting to establish an outpost on Mars would be uh, the obvious choice among all the celestial bodies that are available to us beyond the lunar orbit. And, uh, and in fact, that is NASA's strategy is to go back to, is to go to Mars with humans. And there's been plenty of probes that have done it. Uh, some successful, none, some not successful, and it is definitely a risky and expensive business. But, but there's something about humanity that wants where to in our DNA where we have to do this. We we have to do this, and it doesn't mean Americans have to do this. It means that humans have to do this. And the question is, do Americans want to be a part of that grand adventure or not? So I think of the space domain as being. You know, if you see what's happened in the last 50 years, people have started to use the domain around Earth for the purposes of goodness for Earth, you know, for the purposes of, of growing our society. And certainly we have countless examples of how space capabilities have really been able to raise the quality of life on Earth. And we talked about it, Vikram, before we began this um, public conversation about some of the exciting things that are happening with private space that are designed to do just that. Bring internet, if you will, on a global scale to people all over the world would be one example. But there are countless examples of how people and companies and enterprises and nations are, uh, in effect, leveraging space to advance um, the culture on Earth. Uh, having said that, ex Going further on the exploration front is also um, part of what I think 
will do necessarily as as human beings. Yeah, and so, I, I want to make sure I answered your question, but sure. So let me. So I, you have. Let me. Let me come back to the the commercialization topic and sort of what space can be used as uh, for for humans that are on on planet Earth. But before we do that, I want to talk a little bit further about Mars, um, General Health. So so what are the constraints? What are the challenges? And talk to me from your perspective about what you think will enable that. What are the sort of things we need to get right? to make Mars more likely as a destination for humans? Is it a propulsion focus? Is it a, you know, human uh, psychology, probably not psychology, but human uh, ability to withstand different environments? Is it technical? Is it political? Is it a budgetary dynamic of reallocating resources? Is it time? What is it? It, it, it is all that in an integrated Yes. <laughs> and all those things are necessary yep. and need to be robust in order to, to make this happen. Um, I, I would point out one thing you didn't mention that I think is critically important, and, and that is the question of reliability. Um, you know, we're, we're kind of in a disposal culture here. You know, people, when they buy cars, televisions, what have you. I don't know about you, but when something quits working, I just go out and get a new one. And, and there is a lot to be said for, um, I'm really blooming here. There's a lot to be said for uh, needing to reverse that trend when it comes to all of the equipment that you're going to use to go to Mars, because there is no place to really go dispose of something and pick up some a spare, if you will. So, so one of the things I think is critically important for going to Mars, in addition to all the other things that you said, is a real hardcore understanding about how to make equipment that is reliable for the journey out there, for the environment that is um, sure to be, uh, you're sure to be exposed to, which is a lower gravity, uh, colder, dustier environment. And then if you have a plan to come home, which I think people are planning on that, then you need to have the ability to, to back. come back and do all of that uh, in a fairly reliable way with, um, with a timeline of a couple of years. So, you know, you've got to think about the space radiation implications. You've got to think about the fact of, you know, that if you get your equipment dusty, um, there's, you know, hundreds, hundreds of years of aggravation from engineers on dust getting involved in equipment and ruining the mechanics. I mean, there's all kinds of things like that. And then, of course, there's a psychological element for the people that are going to go do this. Um, enthusiasm is only, only going to carry you so far. I think one thing that would be critically important for the humans that get chosen to do this, at least in the first round or two, is uh, that they have a purpose, that that they're, they're actually going to find themselves useful to the process. They're not just going to um, end up, you know, being there kind of as a, you know, a chimpanzee or, or like they used to think about in the old days of the space program. It's really, really important that humans are part of the process and part of the value of contributing to the mission, not just being something that's dumped on the surface to demonstrate it can be done, but are actually, you're showing that humans are making this happen and um, while certainly there'll be humans on board the spaceship, there'll also be thousands of humans in the background 
that'll be enabling those humans in the foreground um, to execute the mission. So, uh, and then how that will work for long duration spaceflight without the effect of gravity in a radiation unfriendly environment is one of the things that's being studied extensively right now with these missions on space station. Yeah, so uh, I'm gonna ask a question which you may not wanna answer, but any prediction when we'll get there? Oh, okay, so that was that's gonna be budget dependent and national will dependent. Um, and I, for one, probably don't wanna predict how the budget's going to go, but you've got to have constancy of purpose. You've got to have you know, your, your country has to be willing to, to put the investment into this for the long haul. Um, one thing that is incredibly destructive to NASA's budget is when the budget falls to the whims of the back and forth of the politics. And I would like to think that something like this would rise above the politics, would not be um, at risk of being whipsawed by the politics. Because if, if that's what is set up as the ingoing condition, then it's likely not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, you've really got to have a strategic national will or international will if we partner up with uh, other nations, which is, which is actually very likely to happen. Uh, we've yeah. got to make commitments for the long term in order for this to happen. And so, so only when I see that will I be willing to give you a timeline about okay. when it could happen. Right. I will say, however, I think odds are pretty nice for your nine-year-old. Uh, <laughs> Perfect. I, you know, he might have a chance to go do this. Excellent. Um, now, one of the things we've talked about previously is how dispersion of effort may sort of dissipate that resolve, right? Sort of the commercialization, the, you know, a, a space launch system versus a SpaceX system versus et cetera, rather than pulling effort and focus for that, you know, almost nationalistic sort of patriotic purpose. Um, how do you think that'll play out? I mean, is the commercialization of space counterproductive at some level to this purpose? I, I well, certainly space has become more competitive. And some would argue, me included, that the competition has ended up providing value to the overall access to space. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm a big fan of SpaceX. I'm a big fan of Blue Origin. Uh, I'm a big fan of anybody who ends up bringing space closer and closer to the people of Earth, because I think there is incredible value in being able to appreciate um, the value of Earth from the perspective of space. I, for one, would love to see space tourism really take off. I, I, I was changed by the experience. I know others would be as well. And the more humans that see the Earth from space, the better as far as I'm concerned. So I think from the standpoint of low Earth orbit and promulgating into the domain, you know, between here and the moon, I am not seeing an issue with competition. I think competition is actually sparking a lot of innovation. And, and in effect, um, that innovation is healthy from my perspective. Because you, you know, NASA is an example. You can get set in your ways. You can cling to older ideas. Um, in the military, I like to say it was time for me to step aside and let the younger minds try to figure out how to do some of this stuff because um, they're motivated, they're excited, they have new ideas, and you need that to stay fresh. And certainly that's not just happening in the U.S., that's happening globally. 
Um, now, having said that, going to Mars is something akin to you've got to have a national objective. And yeah. that national objective has to be coherent, technically achievable, and funded and politically supported. Mm -hmm. And if competition is going to undermine that, then I would not be a fan of that. Sure. Um, so, but I do think there's plenty of room for comp for the competition part of this between here and the moon and actually be all the way to the surface of the moon. NASA has a, a, you know, a recent competition that occurred for the human lander system. So, so going to the moon, this competition is a healthy thing that contributes to the value. Uh, but going to Mars, um, it, it's going to be so much more of a commitment and a need for coherence yeah. that, um, I would say probably not, and it's hard. Going to yeah. Mars is gonna be so yeah. much harder than going to the moon. Uh, yeah. So it's probably not the right time for a competitive field. Do you, think it, do you think it requires a Sputnik moment of some sort, whether it's the Chinese achieving something uh, that sort of really shocks us into acknowledgement that it requires this resolve? Uh, or do you think it could sort of naturally emerge through this sort of desire? Well, I, I would, there, it is true, and this was certainly not only Sputnik, but it was also true for 9-11. You know, nothing gets Americans in a coherent mindset like competition, which, which in the case of 9-11 was realizing there was a war on terror in effect, and, and we all banded together in the face of that. Um, so when we face a competitive environment, we seem to do better at this banding together thing. Um, but, but I would, I don't know, I would like to think that we're, we're doing it because it is right for America's strategy for being a superpower. Mm -hmm. uh, we are a superpower. We, we want to remain a superpower. There are so many advantages to us as a nation and to the world by remaining as a superpower and having a strong space program is an attribute of a superpower. Yeah. Um, my point being is if we don't do it, others will. Yep. In fact, others might do it anyway. Um, so <laughs> it, it is not something Americans will make the, they'll make, Americans will not make the final decision on whether humans go to Mars. You know, there are other nations that are also capable uh, their timelines might be longer, sure. but, but they will certainly have the ambitions of going to other planets when the, the time is right for, um, for their nations. So thinking of this as just an American problem is probably a little short-sighted. Got it. So there's a bunch of questions here, but before I turn to some of them, I have a couple of fun ones I want to drizzle in here. Uh, the first one, uh, General Helms, is what is your favorite book? Uh, <laughs> surprisingly i've had these i've had these webinar discussions with all sorts of people from all sorts of white walks of life and the feedback i receive is people love the book recommendations they get and they love the movie and then and the mini series recommendations so we got to ask you what's your favorite book okay uh, well the book that i have read more than any other book in my life and i love i've always loved to read it is gone with the wind by margaret mitchell and i'll tell you why it was my favorite book for those of you who haven't read Gone with the Wind, um, first of all, it was written in 1936, so it's of a different era, and it's from the perspective of the losers of the Civil War. But the bottom line is uh, Scarlett O'Hara was her own woman, 
And, uh, and I was stunned when I read that book in high school to figure out that uh, here's, here was a heroine of a book who was really good at math. And that's one of the key plot points in the book is that she ends up being smarter at math than a lot of the men that are around her. And that resonated with me and yep. um, made me realize, you know, in her era in the book, it's, it's right after the Civil War. But nonetheless, she was a woman who started a business and, um, and ended up being very independent. And for some reason, that sung to me when I was in high school. And so that was why the book was my favorite is because I actually read about someone who seemed yep. to have a mindset that was like what the way I thought about what I could do. Yep. Having said that, she is an Anna heroine. She's not the nicest person if you read that book. And certainly that book today resonates differently in, a, in the George Floyd era, because as has been rightfully pointed out, there's a lot of racist language in the book. But nonetheless, in high school, for me, that book was all about how strong she was as a woman. Yeah. Interesting. Good. Um, let's turn to some of the questions that have come in here. Uh, one from some of your, uh, your friends. Um, that uh, it's well she put it in here so i will just say it's from dave and laurie robinson what is your opinion of how the u.s has stood up the u.s space force um my opinion is uh that this is going pretty well i i actually uh have had a chance to get a peek under the tent on how some of the uh, implementation plans have come along and i've been quite impressed at the deliberation of thought that's gone into it. I, I have seen the congressional language. I think that the answer of the Air Force, in particular the Secretary of the Air Force, Barbara Barrett, and Jay Raymond, who's the Chief Space Officer, they've been very thoughtful about how they have um, gone through this. Uh, they they want to do it right. The operational part of this has already stood up and running, it seems to me. Um, there are opportunities here to look at some of the space development projects and go faster, cheaper, and leverage heavily on innovation to, to be better than we have been in terms of space acquisition. But I really think that they are thinking about all the right things. And they are moving pretty quickly as well, which is of course what Congress intended. And, um, and so I, have, I, I really don't have much negative to say. I'm not sure I could have done anywhere near as good a job as Barbara Barrett and Jay Raymond in doing this. But um, the other thing that I've noticed from talking to people is how excited people are about the Space Force. Uh, I mean, it's, it, they know they're a part of history. Yeah. They know they're at the, the start of a new phase of the chapter of the Department of Defense, and they are very excited about it. And I look at some of the young people that used to work for me. Now those young people have risen up in the ranks a little bit. Those are the people that are driving the boat right now, it seems to me, in terms of setting up doctrine and strategy and the thinking behind force design and analysis and warfighting for uh, a future space force. And I'm really excited to see um, those young minds that Lori Robinson and I were probably unwittingly shaping when we were in our military positions and to see that they've not only exceeded our expectations, but they're going to go much farther than we ever could have imagined in well, terms of thinking about all this. They had great mentorship and great leadership. So uh, great, great folks to learn from. Uh, so uh, here's another question. Um, how close are we to interactions with aliens? Uh, not very. 
<laughs> you know, great question. I get that one a lot. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, astronauts are looked to often on, you know, how, how many aliens have you seen? And kids ask that a lot. And uh, the answer is, unfortunately, we haven't seen any. Um, we have certainly, I think the astronauts get a chance at times to have the advantage of being above the Earth's atmosphere. And when you get that visual advantage, you can see so many more stars with the naked eye than you can on Earth, because there's something about the atmosphere that sort of attenuates the visibility of a lot of the constellations. Yep. And when you get up there and see so much more and realize that some of those stars are actually entire galaxies, you know, the odds are um, you sit there and you think, golly, how could there not be something out there, given that, you know, how much, as Carl Sagan used to say, millions and millions and millions of stars and galaxies. Um, now, are we humans ready to meet up with them? I doubt it. But having said that, to my knowledge, there's no, uh, there's no contact to date with aliens. And, um, Got it. and if there were, would you tell us? If there were, I would probably tell you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's a secret, you know, it's a secret I wouldn't probably keep. And, and All right. having said that, I'm not, I've never been stationed at Area 51. I don't know what happened there, but uh, the bottom line is, as an astronaut, uh, we're about as far from aliens as, to my knowledge, as, as I can imagine. And, and pretty much the imagination of, of all that is mm -hmm. primarily rooted in movies and television. Got it. Um, another really interesting question here, which, uh, so what can be done to get more girls and women into STEM and gain careers in space? Any suggestions or thoughts there? Well, I, I definitely think um, pounding the pavement, if you will, and reaching out to them on a constant basis, that is just a, something that can never stop. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a very um, girl-friendly environment when I was a kid, and, and I, I had a lot of mentors to look around and point to for um, math and science. For, in fact, my teachers in school for math and science were female in the school that I went to. Um, and it wasn't because it was an all-female school. That's just how it was. And so it never occurred to me that, um, that I was supposed to think differently about my own capabilities for math and science because my teachers were female. Uh, but after I became an astronaut and started touring around the country doing speeches and the like, particularly at uh, grade schools and junior highs and high schools, only then did I realize that, that my experience was not common and that there were a lot of places in this country where um, girls entering math and science is discouraged or was discouraged at the time that I was doing this as an astronaut. And, um, and that, that actually um, awoke something in me that made me realize that this is something that takes more aggressive engagement than sitting back and thinking that it's happening naturally because it doesn't happen naturally. So there just needs to be constant engagement uh, when it comes to reaching out to young women for, for science and math. Uh, the, the field of space needs women. You need the diversity of thought. You need to have the talent. Heaven knows there's just tons of talent out there that is yet untapped, whether it be people of color, color or, or women, and, and in all cases, we need to feel welcomed 
that our talent and value would be appreciated. And so that's the other side of the coin. Not only do you get the young women and other diverse communities interested in math and science, particularly if they think they have an interest in it, but then you've got to make sure they're incentivized to, to stay and feel like they're being valued in those communities. So, um, so all of this needs to be worked on a full spectrum. Sure. Uh, General Holmes, you talked a little bit earlier about sort of reuse and our societal sort of disposition to dispose. Uh, well, apparently space has a lot of debris, uh, or so I've been reading. Um, and I remember when, you know, out on a trip to Colorado, where I think I met you first and spent some time with General Robinson and General Falkenberry and a bunch of other wonderful, uh, very accomplished senior military professionals, I learned there were thousands and thousands and thousands of pieces flying around, some of which, even though quite small, could be quite devastating. Um, and I know you've been thinking, talking, writing about this concept of space debris, the cleanup, and sort of the risk it poses to sort of human activity in space. How should we think about it as just as normal citizens? Is there anything that can be done? What should be done? What can be done, if anything, about space debris? And how big a problem is it? Well, the problem right now, I would say, is um, it's, a, it's a problem of increasing risk. And increasing risk because, as was stated in our national policy of 2010, space is becoming more and more congested. Um, it, it's becoming more congested because we have these private enterprises that are launching lots and lots of little satellites. But it's also becoming more congested because as more satellites get up there and then they you know, they, they go through their whole timeline of usefulness and they're still up there after they quote unquote die off, so to speak. Um, we've had 50 years of that, 50 plus years of that now. And so the, the question, is, so the question is, what do you do with a lot of the dead objects that are up there? And, um, and early on, the big sky theory was kind of in play. Early on, meaning the first 30 to 40 years. It didn't mean you didn't have a couple of near misses once in a while, but um, but the first, when you have relatively small number of satellites up there, you have a relatively small number amount of debris. But we've had some um, notable events in the last 15 to 20 years, which has risen, I think, everybody's awareness on this issue. And, and one of them, which increased the debris catalog by a hefty percentage, on the order of 20 to 25 percent was uh, when the Chinese decided to shoot a missile at one of their own dead satellites in 2007. And they, um, they shot that missile. I, I couldn't tell you anything about their intentions related to that, that moment, but that's what they did. The debris they created is still up there. It is um, dangerous and risky and continues to propagate all over the the space domain in a large swath of altitudes. And, um, and that is, that's when people really became, became aware that this could be a problem. Uh, the second thing that happened that I think is of, of note is there was a collision between yeah, an active did. satellite and a defunct yeah. rocket body uh, in 2009, yeah. which also created a field of debris. And, and so those two events, which were only a couple years apart, I think really raised the awareness of all this. And now there's, there's a, a, a massive effort globally 
to track all this debris that's up there. And it's not just those two events that created debris. Sometimes you have dead satellites where for whatever reason, their batteries explode after some period of time and that creates more debris. Um, and some of, um, some of what's up there right now are just some dead satellites that happen to exist in a regime around other satellites. Mm -hmm. And uh, when a satellite is dead, it's effectively not controllable. So it can drift around and um, satellite owners who have live satellites in that vicinity will then need to manage their satellites around this drifting object, which is not under control. So, um, so it, it goes from, you know, the space station altitude, which is about 400 kilometers all the way up to um, the geosynchronous altitude, which is where all of our communication satellites pretty much reside. And then beyond that, um, there's a little bit more uh, where people have taken dead satellites in if they could kind of super sync them out of the way uh, above the geosynchronous altitude. So uh, the, pro the point I'm trying to make is that the problem is growing, the risk is growing. And so you said, is there anything you can do? Yes, there's absolutely things that can be done. There's, um, there's the establishment of norms behavior so people can have transparency into what everybody's doing with their satellite constellations and with their debris management. You can do lots of things with spacecraft design. I had mentioned the exploding batteries. There's technologies where, where you could try to preclude that kind of thing from happening on future satellite designs. You could do shielding like the space station does uh, in order to mitigate um, the potential and risks of micrometeoroids hitting the space station. They have shields up there solely for that purpose. Um, you could try to generate an international scheme like air traffic control does, you know, where, where people can start to have um, a, a, a framework where regulation of orbits uh, can be managed on a more proactive scale so that you can maneuver out of each other's way, if you will, and kind of keep the risk to a minimum. Um, you can do policies at the national and international level for disposal of rocket bodies, for example. That would be another area where not necessarily a lot going on globally on that right now, but that would be something that, that would greatly help mitigate um, the debris problem of the future. Uh, and you can have coherent investments and in analysis and technologies in order to up our game on all this. The bottom line is, is, is that it's a global international effort. And while the day-to-day -to -day today is trying to manage the risk to preclude collision, there's a lot that can be done to try to bring the risk down in the future um, in order to ensure the sustainability of space as a domain. Now, you know, when you're talking about going to the moon, you've got to worry about the debris problem on your way there. You know, it's a three-day trip to the moon with current propulsion. But somebody, before the, they lift off, is going to have to go out there and compute all the debris that's in the way. And it may, in fact, narrow the window of time for your launch window because of the fact there might be debris crossing your path between Earth's surface and the moon in the moon's orbit. So yep. this is um, something that wasn't worried about in the Apollo program because the debris load just wasn't there. Uh, yeah. dense enough yet, but it is becoming more and more dense. And so there needs to be a, a, an international effort um, from, from the nation states to come together and, and try to work this risk management problem and sustainability 
um, desires uh, at a global level. Yeah, for, for anyone who hasn't really uh, been aware of all the space junk and the space debris problem, there's a wonderful New Yorker article recently called The Elusive Peril of Space Junk. I'd, it's, you know, it's a little bit longer, but it's worth reading, gives you a layman's sort of perspective on this issue and how significant it can be. But you, you hinted at one thing there, General Helms, about sort of the China sort of shooting down a satellite and sort of, you know, the whole anti-satellite uh, sort of denial of capability, uh, risks that exist in the militarization of space strikes me as something that's going to be more and more of a focus. Um, is there any reason to think this isn't the next forefront of sort of Cold War 2.0, you know, U.S. versus China effectively? Uh, is there any reason to have a belief that that isn't a domain of competition where anti-satellite logic, and maybe throw the Russians in this mix as well, um, that this is, this is just an inevitability at this point, and so we need to plan and, and think about it from that perspective? Yeah, I, well, first of all, you've hit on the reason why the U.S. Space Force is being stood up to begin with, is because you've got to put coherence in budgets and planning and, and um, the management, if you will, of, of the risks in the domain. And this would be risks to commerce and, and risks to how the domain is being used to support our military forces and to support our nation as a whole. So. Uh, putting putting things together in a space force to put focus on all that is is absolutely uh, why it was done to begin with. But I'd like to kind of back up and describe the way I like to think of this, Vikram. Um, yep. I had already spoken to the fact that that humans are already taking our first steps beyond the Earth's surface and beginning to promulgate society, if you will, up to low Earth orbit, and um, if things come to pass the way the current NASA budget is looking, it, it will start extending that to the moon here in the pretty near future. You know, I'd mentioned no timeline for Mars, but for moon, we are talking the 2020s. Yeah. And, um, and I had already mentioned that space tourism is on the verge and, and your son might go to Mars, but some of us on this call might have, saved our pennies enough to buy a ticket to space as a tourist. And, um, and we're not too old for that, I don't believe. I think that is something that is on the verge of happening, particularly when you look at where SpaceX is and Blue Origin and, and these other uh, private enterprise companies that are doing space tourism as a, as a mission. Um, so it's my view that wherever you know, humans peacefully go, mischief follows. Mischief being a euphemism for folks who, who you know, like to create mischief. It might not be a nation state. It might be a non-government entity, but nonetheless, um, you can count on mischief following where humans go. It's just going to happen because it's always happened. Mm -hmm. um, and, and add to that the fact that our military, our Department of Defense, and by the way, probably well beyond the Department of Defense, many, many elements of the U.S. government very much depend on space to get what they need to do the, what they have to do, to do their missions. Um, the military in particular is what I'm familiar with, but if you think about the fact that the way our national policies work, our military often operates in a way game mode. You know, if you look at um, 
Afghanistan and some of the things that are going on in China for China and Afghanistan and some of the other entities that out there that the military interfaces with, they're home games for them. But for us, it's an away game. And when you have an away game with um, something like the Department of Defense, inevitably you have to rely on space capabilities to execute your away game strategy. And, and smart militaries of other nations have realized this. This is really not a secret. So knowing that they are looking at how we play away games and looking how reliant we are on space in general, it's, it's actually very smart for them to figure out ways to make us a little blind and deaf so that when we try to execute our away game strategy, we end up perhaps getting confused in the process. It's, it's classic Sun Tzu yep. uh, war gaming strategy. So it's not surprising to see uh, competitors think through this and try to think through how to get us off our game, knowing we're playing away game and are heavily reliant on space and cyber for that matter. Sure. Um, so we've got to figure out a way to, to keep from being undermined by those intentions. And, um, and it doesn't have to be a space-based problem. I mean, jammers are very cheap and prevalent. And you mm -hmm. don't have to be a superpower to, uh, to buy jammers and use them. And uh, an example of that would be GPS jammers. You know, they're very localized. But you can certainly create a lot of chaos in a local area if you happen to have a cheap gps jammer and you turn it on and you're you're in an area with others who are reliant on the gps signal in order to 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 do whatever it is that they're doing whether it be landing airliners or um trying to find out where your forces are in in a conflict environment so um so it, the whole problem is more complex because we're in the information age and space capabilities are now so deeply ingrained in everything. So I wouldn't call it just a, a concern of superpowers. I would also call it a concern of everybody, um, particularly given how space has embedded itself in everything we do. And, and I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's a big surprise to learn that even when you go to the ATM machine and you want to take money out of an ATM machine or pump gas or, get your data from the stock market. All that relies on space capabilities uh, to make it happen in this day and age. And so we'd like to keep all that flowing. Um, the Air Force in particular is um, the entity that provides the GPS signal. And so as the Air Force is part of the Department of Defense, it's up to the Department of Defense to make sure that is assured. And looking at how we defend space capabilities is something that absolutely, <laughs> I was brought in to help with in the early 2000s, but that has now burgeoned into a, um, a more and more critical issue as time has gone on. Sure. I hope I answered your question. Yeah, no, you did. Look, it's a very challenging uh, environment with a lot of cross currents and lots of competition and rivalry. I mean, I think that's an area where we're all going to need to pay more attention to. And I can imagine policymakers, military professionals, and technologists, actually, uh, finding more uh, reason to pay more attention, not less attention going forward. So, um, so General Holmes, I realize we, we are effectively out of time. We spent an hour. I could probably talk to you for another three hours. I mean, the list of questions actually that people have been texting me and I'm seeing come through, hyper, I'll just list them because others may want to go read up on these things. So hypersonics, uh, 
what's happening with uh, asteroid mining? Is there 3D printing capability in outer space? If you recycle some of this debris, can you print stuff from it and sort of get ourselves going further? What is, there was a question about osteoporosis in space, I guess maybe oh, with yeah. gravity, the sort of bone density issues arise. I There's, lost 5%, but I got it back, so yeah. There you go. Uh, and then, you know, there was questions about, is it hot or cold in a space suit? Uh, you know, in theory, you're supposed to be, you, you see in the movies people sweating, but you know, you're in outer space, so it's cold. So are you hot or are you cold? Anyway, there are a ton of questions here, uh, which I guess indicates people were really engaged. So. Uh, I have to thank you. Uh, thank you, General Holmes. This was a wonderful time. I appreciate you taking the time. I, I can tell from all the number of questions here, there's a lot more interest in what you're doing and what you've done, uh, but uh, better to leave people with more curiosity. Oh, thank you very much, Vikram, for bringing me in to do this. It was a lot of fun. And uh, obviously I'm passionate about the subject and love talking about it. So I really appreciate your questions. They were great. Well, great. Thank you very much. And I'm sure I'll, you and I will talk again sometime soon. So Hope thanks so. everyone for dialing in. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Think for Yourself podcast, hosted by Dr. Vikram Mancharamani. As a reminder, the video replay of today's episode is available at www.mansharamani.com. Finally, if you've not already done so, we encourage you to subscribe to the Think for Yourself podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or Spotify. Thank you.